I can't, I can't relate to that feeling Jamie was sharing about, although I probably need to. I just, I, I can't stop eating, right? I found myself at, at, uh, at Vanessa's parents last night just standing by the uh, cake dish, just reaching over and grabbing pieces of the icing un- unapologetically. So, hey, guess who we have here tonight? Come on. Come on. If you didn't know, Chris and Shanika, they now have the same last name. And uh, so this is their first service back with us, uh, married, and, and so we just wanted to be able to just give a moment to say how excited we are for you guys. And, uh, and when we were down in Atlanta, I felt like God gave me a word for them, and uh, I thought I was going to have an opportunity to maybe share it when her maid of honor couldn't find the rings, but that's a story for another time. But, but uh, the, uh, and I'm going sh- to share this word with you, but it's about them. But it's, it's, it's about them. So in, in Revelation 4, there's this, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible where it gets to the part where it paints a picture of the throne of heaven. And there are these incredible creatures that are surrounding the throne, and there's a song that they sing, and then when they sing that song, then the 24 elders that are around the throne in the glassy sea, then they begin to cast down their crowns, and they have a song that they sing, and the song that the creatures sing, the four creatures around the throne, this is the song that they sing. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and who is to come. And this is what it says in verse 9. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting that's on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. And as I was reading that when we were in Atlanta, I don't know if you do this, but I, do. I, tend, I have a tendency to read the Bible through my personality. Do you do that? So, so part of me is I'm a type A controlling personality. Those of you who know me know that's kind of who I am. I like order and structure. And, 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 and when I read that in, in Atlanta, I was up one morning and, and, uh, and I thought to myself, I'm going to like heaven, right? Because there's order there, right? These people, they knew what to do, when they're supposed to do it. It's, t- it's, it's right, it's, it's all choreographed just right. I just, I'm picturing they've got their own Hannah Godwin, the service coordinator, and giving cues that this is when the creatures do their song and the elders do theirs, and I'm kind of making fun of myself a little bit. And th- this is what I, I, I felt like God whispered to me. Glory needs no choreography. Glory needs no choreography. That the glory of God, when we get to heaven, the, what, whatever we taste here on this earth, come on, it's just an appetizer. It's just, it's just a foretaste, as good as it is. When we get to heaven, we're not going to need people to tell us when to worship or what to sing because the glory of God is so overwhelming and awe-inspiring that it's just going to draw it right out of us. We're not going to need an order of service. We're, we're just going to be flowing in the presence of his spirit, and we're going to know what to do, when to do it. But there's not going to be an orientation class as much as I would like to think that there is one, right? Not going to need any of that. And so as, as I felt like God was speaking these things to me, this is what I felt like he spoke to me about Chris and Shanika, that there is an anointing that is on their life that as they worship the glory of God, that it's going to inspire other people to have praise birthed in their own hearts. 
See, because in that text in Revelation, what you see is that when those four creatures around the throne, when they sing their song, it inspires everybody else to want to sing their song. That when they see this worship, it causes worship to well up inside of them. And that there's an anointing that God has put on their life. It's been on their life. And now that they're married, it's going to be, I think, even bigger. It's going to be more than the collective joining together of the anointing that they had by themselves. That as they continue to worship the glory of God, that it is going to inspire other people. And it's going to give birth to praise in the hearts of everyone around them. So we just want to pray into that for them. Father, we just thank you for Chris and Shanika. We thank you for the gift that, that Chris has been to City Life. We thank you now, God, for the gift that Shanika is going to be to City Life, God. We, Father, we want to be a gift to them in turn. And we thank you for this anointing on their life. We thank you for this calling on their life, God. And that, that may it be that as we watch them, as we follow them in moments of worship like we followed tonight, that we would allow our hearts to be inspired by your glory and the praise that you would birth in us even now while we're in this temporal realm. We say, let a song be written in our heart and that we would be inspired to sing it as they sing theirs. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, Amen. Come on, let's say congratulations to them one more time. It's good. I'm going to put my dad's cross on. If you're visiting with us, my dad passed away in November. This is the cross that he always wore, so I'm going to be wearing this for a little while when I preach as a remembrance and a celebration of his life. So, hey, you know, Sean Bay is with us tonight. Come on. So somebody came up to me who didn't want me to to tell you her name because she wanted to be anonymous, Hannah Godwin, and said, um, said hey, if I give you a gift card, will you give it to her? I said, well, the church will buy it from you. She said, you don't, the church need to buy it. It's Sean Bay. It's Sean Bay. So here's a little Starbucks gift card. Little, little thank you. It's good to have you with us. Good to have you with us. So, all right. You guys ready tonight? Come on. Project Hope, this series that we've been in together, and uh, it's going to be hard for me to, I've, I've just, I've, I've really, this, this, this series has, has ministered to my own heart, and I trust it has for you too. It's the longest series I think that we've ever done as a church. It's, this might be the last weekend of this, so we're, we'll, we'll see. Maybe, because I, I want to teach on fasting in, in January, so maybe, I'll see, maybe we're going to pick it back up. I don't, I don't know yet, so. Um, it, but, but this idea of, of Project Hope is, is we've been exploring as a, as a church, is the, is the difference between the emotion of hope and the virtue of hope. That the emotion of hope is, is it, it, it moves with your circumstance. So when your circumstance is good, you feel hopeful. When your circumstance is bad, you feel despairing. That's how emotions go. Virtues are very different from emotion. Virtue, they might share the same word and they might share a similar feeling, but virtues, they transcend circumstances. Virtues are above our circumstances. And so we're using the imagery of life below zero, people that live in a desperate place that sometimes emotionally we feel like we're up there in a cold, dark, and desolate place. And it's in those times where we need hope more than any time else. Last week, and I shared with you this thought that the virtue of hope always begins with a promise from God. Not the emotion of hope. That begins with the, the, the heart of the human emotion. But the virtue of hope, it, it has to begin with a promise from God. The promise of God is the seed of the virtue of hope. And this is the verse that we've just kept looking at again and again in Romans 4, 18 through 19. It talks about how Abraham, that he's a hundred. His wife is not too far after him. They're well beyond childbearing years. They've been given a promise that they're going to have more. Their descendants are going to be like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky and yet they don't have one child together yet. It's a hopeless situation. 
But the Bible says that he hoped against hope. The Bible says that he continued to to hope in the midst of a despairing situation. Why? Because he had a promise. And that promise from God was a seed of the virtue of hope. And so last week I asked the question, but what, what do we do when there's no promise for us? I don't know about you, but in every difficult situation that I find myself in this life, I don't have an Abraham promise. There's times in in my past where I face difficult circumstances and I don't feel like I've got a very specific promise about this specific situation like Abraham had. And and we talked last weekend together that, that many of you have probably been through a situation like that and maybe some of you are there right now where you have prayed and you have read and you have wept and you have sought counsel and you've worshiped and you've fasted and you've done it all again and then it seems as though there is no promise that's forthcoming to you. What do we do in situations and circumstances like that? God is not always going to give us a specific promise for every situation. My revelation of his goodness must be greater than the reality of my circumstances. We shared this last last weekend that there are going to be times where God says, I'm not going to give you a specific promise because you've got everything that you need to be hopeful. That my life together with you has been promise after promise after promise about my goodness. And when my revelation of his goodness becomes greater than my circumstance, I'm able to be hope-filled even if I feel like there is a void of a promise that I've been waiting for. So Romans 8, 31 through 37 is... was our text last week, and we're going to continue in it tonight. Romans 8, 31 through 37, and we did the first promise, which is what shall we say about such wonderful things? That's verse 31. So there's four questions in here that I believe there are four questions that are a promise. There there are questions that are rhetorical in nature because Paul's giving us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit four promises that we need to get a hold of so that when we find ourselves in situations where we don't have a specific promise, we've got these general promises about the goodness of God that give life to hope in our heart. If God is for us, then who can ever be against us? Verse 32, since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? This is the second promise that we're going to do tonight. We're going to do the middle two tonight. No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? That's the third one. So we're going to do who will accuse us and who will condemn us. These two promises that those two questions hold. No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, which is pointing back to Psalm 44, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I don't think we're going to get to, can anything separate us? I think I'm going to blog about that next week, and so we'll post that online, and you can check that out. So, Father, as we get into these two promises tonight, Father, may may it be that you would just prepare our hearts to receive from you, That, that we want your word that is alive and active, as it says of itself. It's penetrating, dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow as you write of your own word in the book of Hebrews. God, let it be that your word would be that to us tonight. That even in our humanity, that, that we would be able to grasp things of eternity. That, that even in the, the limits of our own human understanding, that your spirit inside of us in the presence of your spirit in this room would bring great revelation to us tonight. 
We want the seeds of your promises to overflow in the garden of our soul so that hope would come alive. May it be for all of us tonight. All right, so the first one is this. Who dares accuse us? In Romans 8, 33, who dares accuse us? And again, I think in this question, we're gonna find is an incredible promise that becomes a seed that gives birth to hope in our hearts. So, so I'm assuming that you, like me, that you have regrets from your past. Now, we like participation moments at City Life. We're not gonna do one now, right? You're like, whoo, thank God, right? If you have a regret, raise your hand, that's right? Right, you, but we all know. We, we might not know what they are. Now, we know, we know some of our regrets, right? Those of you that are in life groups together, or men's groups and ladies groups, and you've had a chance to really step into some, some, some vulnerable moments, we, we can look around this room and we know some of our regrets. Some of you have met with me as your, your pastor and just trying to get some count, right? And, and I know some of your regrets. Some of you know some of my regrets that I share about openly here at the church. We, we all have them. We all have things in our past, and I don't know about you, but some, sometimes for me, there's moments where I just, I feel overcome with regret, just, out, just randomly. You know, I might think of something that I did years ago, the way I treated somebody, or, or maybe something good that I should have done that I chose not to do in a moment of selfishness, and all of a sudden, you know that feeling, right? That feeling, it's regret. It just gets inside of us. We just, it, it's just a, it's a terrible, it's a terrible feeling. So I have a picture here of somebody who did something that they should regret. Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, and it was at the Christmas party for the church leaders, and I'm gonna put it up there. Some of you are sweating right now. Somebody needs a handkerchief. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? Here it comes. Yeah, it's Pastor Jamie. I know, see? So we're, I know, we're always watching. We're always watching. See, so, so we're at the Christmas party. We're at the Christmas party. And Terrence, who's now on staff with us as, a, as an intern, he, he, he has like a nuclear reactor inside of his body, right? It has to be like 45 degrees or he's, he's perspiring. So, so we get to the, the Christmas party for the, the church leaders. And I'm in the room and my fingers are turning blue. And, and, and I can see my breath. And I'm like, what in the world? And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, Terrence was probably in here setting up. And he forgot to turn the thermostat back on to heat. And so I go over there and it's set on air conditioning. It's like 40 degrees outside. And it's set for like 66. I, I don't even set my thermostat for 66 in the summertime, right? When it's 110 degrees in August. And so I fix it. And I'm thinking, oh, Terrence, he just forgot. And so I go back and sit down. Like 20 minutes later, I feel cold air you know, blowing on the back of my neck. From the, uh, from the air vent. I'm thinking, oh, maybe I didn't. I thought I fixed it. Maybe I didn't. So I go back again, change it again. 20 minutes later, right? Cold air blowing on the back of my neck. I'm like, all right, hey, what's going on here? Right? So I go back, fix the thermostat, and then I say, where's Terrence? Stay away from this thermostat, right? So I find him in the room. And he's like, I didn't do it. And I'm like, yes, you did, right? And so here I am accusing him. You get the relevance to the story, right? And so there's Jamie listening to the whole thing. Does he step forward? And take off for his friend? No, he does not. But little does he know that his friend that he wouldn't take up for has taken a picture of him. So he's been watching me go to the thermostat. And when I go back to my seat, Jamie runs over and changes it. And the thing I love about the story that in the reflection of his glasses is a Christmas tree, which is such a picture of joy and purity and, and goodwill towards men. But the expression on his face is that evil is fun, right? All right. All right, we like to have a little fun with each other. See, see, this word that Paul talks about in Romans 8, to accuse in the Greek, is this word E-G-K-A-L-E-O. It's a legal term. It means to come forward as an accuser. 
It means to bring a charge against someone. It means to call to account, to accuse, translated as accuse, or sometimes in your Bible, it's translated actually to, to charge. Now, you know, I'm a film person. I'm very disappointed, right? We were going to all go see American Sniper tonight, and uh, we did not get picked. How can they not pick this region for the early release, right? I mean, that's just crazy. Hello. I don't know who did the marketing research for that, so we're going to do that in January. But you know, I'm a, big, I'm a big film person, and so I've got some favorite courtroom films that I'm going to throw up there in just a minute. But in many of these movies, many of you have seen them. It depends on an eyewitness. It depends on somebody who saw what happened and they are willing to come into the court to testify, to accuse the person who's being tried. And sometimes, even if their character is suspect, if their story is believable, it's still enough to convict them. All right, here's, here's, my, here's some of my top courtrooms, right? A few good men, because in that movie they say, yeah, come on, that's good, I know, yeah. The Verdict, Aaron Brockovich, A Time to Kill, To Kill a Mockingbird, Injustice for All, Runaway Jury, A Civil Action, Suspect, and Man for All Seasons, right? Anybody have on there that I left out that you want to throw up? Not that you want to throw up, because, right, all right, here. Anybody, have, that we miss any, right? You've, if, if you've seen these, you know, right? They're, these are great dramatic performances. Some of them are based on true stories. And there's this moment where somebody comes to the stand. And the person that's sitting there being accused gets nervous because they know that that person knows what they did and they're about ready to testify. Romans, tw- I mean, Revelation 12. Oh, this is a good text. See, sometimes there's chapters in the Bible that go together, even though they're not in the same book, because it's all written by the same person. You with me? Who's God? All right. Revelation 12. I'm going to read 9 through 11. Revelation 12, 9 through 11. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. And then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, who we know as Jesus. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, or in the King James it's called the accuser of the brethren, has been thrown down to the earth And the one who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have defeated him, or in the King James, again, it says they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, loving not their lives even unto death. Now, now just a, a quick moment to teach a little bit. This idea of them being thrown down, there's lots of schools of thought about what this text is referring to, and we're not going to all know who's getting it right until we get to heaven, and I think a lot of the things that we have on our list of the questions that we want to ask once we get there, the glory of God is going to be so overwhelming, we're not going to care about that list anymore anyways. But one of the things on my list, right, are texts like this, which one is it? And this idea of being thrown down, I'm, I'm in this camp, and you might be in a different camp, but I'm in this camp. This isn't referring to the original rebellion of Lucifer and the fallen angels in their first rebellion. Because as you read through scripture, what you find is that the devil had a measure of access to the heavens even after he had been initially cast out. Where do we find that? In Job 1, 1 through 6, is the devil comes before God and he's asking for permission to bring trouble and tribulation into Job's life. And different, again, different people approach this differently, but I think there was a measure of access. We don't know why he was given a measure of access But this text here in Revelation 12, and then Jesus refers to it in Luke 10, I think there was a second casting out that didn't happen until Jesus was born into this earth. 
And then a great battle raged again. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he took from Satan the keys of sin and death. And I believe that in that moment, all of the access that the enemy has ever had was closed to him for all eternity. And the name that is given to him is interesting to us tonight because he's called the accuser of the brethren. Now, there are a couple of words in the Greek for accuser, and it's the one that God did not pick that I find curious. See, because there's one that's Diablo, and we're familiar with that. That word is actually used in certain languages to mean the devil, and the the translation of that word means slanderer. Now, we understand slander. Some of you have been, people have slandered you, have said things about you that aren't true, to harm your reputation, to damage you. There's a part of who the devil is. He's called Diablo. He's called a slanderer because there's times where he just whispers things in your ear that aren't true because he wants to tear you down. The times where he comes to you and says you're never going to amount to anything. Sometimes he echoes things that other people who are important to us have said to us that were hurtful. Maybe a teacher said that to you. Maybe a parent said that to you. That you're never going to amount to anything in your life. The devil picks that up and he echoes it. It's slander though. It's not true. Come on, you have a destiny that's been created for you from the foundations of the earth. He's a slanderer. But that's, that's not what God picked here, right? It's not as though God didn't have access to his thesaurus that day. When he's inspiring John on the island of Patmos, he's very precise in every word that he picks. This one, this accuser, is from the word kata and agora. We understand agora is open public spaces. That's what gives us agoraphobia. People are afraid of public spaces, and kata means against. This, this word accuser of the brethren is somebody who steps forward in a public setting, like a court case. It's another legal term, and brings the charge. And the connotation is always that there's an aspect of truth of what they're going to say. They're legitimate. Does it, do you find that intriguing? That God would use that to describe the devil? Why wouldn't he call him the, the, the slanderer of the brethren? Why would he call him the accuser of the brethren? Because God knows that sometimes what the devil says about us is true. Because I've got a list, and I know you've got one too, and they're called regrets. The sins of my past the sins of my today. There's times when the devil comes and he whispers things to us that are not true and it's slander and he tries to tear us down. I don't know about you, but those times are not as difficult for me because I know they're lies. It's the times where he comes and he whispers in my ear the things that he knows that I know that I've done wrong. Those are the times that are hard because what he's saying is all too true. And in those moments, as we listen to the whisper of the reminder of the sins that we've committed, maybe the sins that we are, in fact, now committing ourselves and we've not yet broken free from patterns of immorality in our life, maybe it's resisting the good that we know we're called to do and we just keep saying, I'm not going to do it. And sometimes the devil is the accuser of the brethren because he takes great pride in reminding us of our sin. But the text doesn't stop there. It says, hey, these people, the people of God, the children of the king, they have a way that they can overcome. Now we know this idea of overcoming his lies. That's another sermon for another time and there's lots of great texts that speak to that. But this one is about overcoming when what he says is true. This is about overcoming when he's not saying lies and the sin that he's speaking to me is the sin that I've committed, the regrets that I have even now. How did they overcome? They overcame by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony. Now, we've Christianized this word testimony. I'm not complaining about that. There's words that, that, that Christianity is going to take, and it's going to have its own meaning. But if you've been around church through your life, you understand, right? Somebody stands and gives a testimony. We're going to testify. It's a, very, it's a very Christian. It's a very religious term. But it wasn't when John wrote it. It was a legal term. It hadn't, that term had not been Christianized yet. This idea of standing and giving your testimony means that when you're at the trial, and there is a person who's come to bring an accusation against you that oftentimes the accusation is true. You have an opportunity then, just as you do today, to take the stand on your own behalf. And you have a testimony. You, you testify on your own behalf. And the way that we overcome the accuser of the brethren when he's reminding us of the sins that we've actually committed, the way we overcome is the same way that Christians have been overcoming the enemy from the beginning of time. And we just say, Everything that you have said is true. In fact, it's really a lot less of what you could have said. It's just a snapshot. You left out this and that and this and this and that and this and that and this, right? I'm a sinner to the dirty, rotten core. But I'm able to overcome that moment because of the blood of the Lamb. Because someone has died to pay the price for my sin. The devil wants us to forget that there is the promise of forgiveness. He wants you to only focus on the mistakes that you've made. And we overcome in that moment. If we're not careful, we'll get swept away in regret from the truth that he speaks. But there should be this moment where he say, I know that I've done all that. I know that I am doing it now. But there is forgiveness that has been afforded to me because the blood of Jesus was shed 2,000 years ago. But the text doesn't just say they overcame by the blood of the lamb. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and their testimony. So you have to have a testimony that's connected to the blood of the lamb, right? If you've not made a vow of devotion to Christ, then the blood of the lamb is not effectual for you. That's universalism. We don't believe in universalism. Universalism says because the blood of Jesus was shed, there is now for a blanket forgiveness that is given to all humanity. We, we don't believe that. That's another sermon for another time. We believe there is a testimony that you have to have. Uh, you've got to be able to look back into the story of your life and find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. And then if you can find that moment when the accuser of the brethren comes to remind you of the sins that you have committed, there's no double jeopardy in heaven just like there isn't double jeopardy in our court system today. Somebody has already paid the price for the sin. And because I've made a vow of devotion to him, that forgiveness that he gave to the world, he has given to me. And I am free. And I can walk out of that courtroom, come on, of eternity with a confidence of knowing that I'm going to be with God in heaven forever after I breathe my last. See, this question that Paul asks, who dares accuse us, is one of the greatest promises that you'll ever be given this side of eternity. It is the promise that you have been forgiven of everything. There's not categories there are categories of sin in regards to how impactful it might be to society. There are categories of sin for how devastating it might be to a family. But the least of sin in eternity is small enough to keep us away from God if it's not under the blood of Christ. God doesn't say, oh, I forgot about that one. There's not enough blood in the world to cover that sin. Because right? the devil's going to try to whisper that in here too. No, no, no. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And this idea of they overcame, it's every person from the beginning of time 
who's found their way into the favor of God through the salvation that he offered. It was the law then. It's the new covenant through Jesus today. And it doesn't matter how big the sin has become. The blood of the lamb is big enough to make it clean. 1 Peter 3.15, we've been talking about this verse I love the tension that exists between the promise that we talked about last week and the command that we're given in 1 Peter 3.15. See, the command last week was, what shall we say? That, that we should have a, such a, a revelation of the goodness of God that we should be speechless. We should be speechless in the face of the revelation of the goodness of God. And even though we might find ourselves in situations and circumstances that are, that are so desperate, we say, I'm still going to have hope because I have a promise of his goodness. And as the cliche says, when I can't see his hand, I trust his heart. And then in 1 Peter 3.15, what does the Holy Spirit inspire Peter to write? Hey, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. See, see this healthy tension. I'm going to be speechless in the face of the revelation of the goodness of God. And, and, but, but God says, hey, you can't stay there. You've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared when people come and ask you, how, how can you have hope? You can say, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I feel a little speechless myself. But there are a few promises that I hold on to. And maybe one of these promises over these last couple of weeks, it's not just going to be a promise that's a seed of hope for you. It's going to be a seed that you plant in somebody else. That you can sit down with someone and say, hey, did you, I, one of the reasons I'm so hopeful in this situation about my finances is because I've just, I, I know that God's forgiven me for every mistake I've made. And people might say, well, those two things aren't connected, but in our spiritual life, it's kind of like we're all women. It's all connected, right? Just making sure you're awake out there. All right. Right, if you're married, you know, right? Did you know that's brain chemistry? Women, the hemispheres of their brain have more connecting pieces than men do, Right? I know, we are underdeveloped, man. It's who we are. In our spiritual life, there's got to be some sense of decompartmentalization. That when I'm facing a hardship here, this promise over here might not be connected to this specifically, but this promise reminds me of his goodness, so it even gives me hope over there. And you have an opportunity as you're walking with people in life, people that you work with, maybe strangers. It might be family members that, that don't really know a lot about this idea of life with God in Christ, that when they ask you about your hope, be prepared to give an answer. Be ready. All right, you ready for number two? If you're struggling with regret from mistakes, oh no, I'm not going to go to number two yet. Okay, come on. I got some time. Let's do this. Let's do this. I don't want to wait until we get to the end to pray about this point because you'll move past it. You'll move past it in your mind and in your heart. So, so we, we, we want to create opportunities for people to respond. So we're not going to linger in this moment, but this is what I want to do. If you're here tonight, I just want to pray over you, and then we're going to go to the next one. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with regret from mistakes and you're feeling a little bit accused, I just, I just want to pray over you tonight that you're going to feel the forgiveness that he's given to you. You might know that he forgives. It's something else in your heart to feel his embrace. So I'm not going to linger in this moment, but I know that there's people here that if you're here tonight and you just said, hey, it's been a hard season for me because I feel like I'm just in this place of constantly being reminded of the mistakes of my past. And I just, I want to feel the promise of that forgiveness. I'm just going to invite you to stand. Right? It takes courage. I know. Just stand where you are. I want to pray for you. Come on. Don't let this moment pass you by. Father, you see the people that are standing here tonight and we just lift them up to you and Jesus. 
Jesus' name, that as they look into the story of their past, maybe even on their way to church tonight, it was happening. And all of a sudden, regret came in like a flood. Oh God, let it be that there would be a greater wave and a greater flood would rise above that wave of regret and there would be a wave of forgiveness that you push out of that glassy sea that's right in front of your throne. And they would leave here tonight soaking, dripping, wet, awash in the forgiveness of the Father that only you can give. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen, amen. Come on, it feels good. All right, number two. Who then, who then will condemn us? I want to get through this one tonight. I can't push it to next week because if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know next week is a big weekend for us. It's our annual sharing service. For some time now, we set aside the first service of every year of the sermon time for you to share just a few minutes about what God has done in your life. And if you've been a part of any of the services, you know, they are absolutely amazing, amazing. And so I want to get through this one. So just bear with me a little bit. We want to get through this one and because uh, we want to be able to give all of our attention to that time of sharing next week. So who then will condemn us? Romans 8, 31 through 32. Now, if we're not careful, we will, we will associate this promise with the other promise too closely. Are they connected? Yes. Is, is there a sense of flow that's happening here? Absolutely. But we, I want to dig a little deeper because I believe just beneath the surface, there's another promise that we need to get a hold of. And this promise is a little bit harder for us to want to hold on to because it has to do with accountability. See, this word here, condemn, is a little bit different from the word accuse. This word condemn means, the one above, it means an accusation. This one, this one, it means that you have been found guilty and now there is an expectation of punishment. You with me? So in a court, right, there's an accusation. But then there's a process that you go through to find out, is this person really guilty of the accusation? The word condemnation comes into play where the accusation has been found to be true. Condemnation, this was a legal term as well, that the judge, he drops the gavel. You're guilty. You've been found guilty of this accusation, and there is an expectation that there is a punishment that is forthcoming. That's this idea of condemnation that Paul's talking about here in Romans 8. John 16, 5 through 11. Oh, come on. These are great partnering texts. Not in the same book, but all from the same heart, and they just, they flow together. John 16, 5 through 11. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples on the last days of his life. He says, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and, and, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, the New Living Translation, I'm glad they picked the word advocate because maybe your Bible translates it's comforter. And I want to talk about the, 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 the misunderstanding we can, we can get here if we, if, if we don't use the right word. An advocate is the better word. Because if I don't, the advocate 
won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now listen to this, verse nine. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. What does that mean? It means the world's sin, the ultimate definition of sin is to refuse God's right to rule in your life. I brought a copy of this book. I'm not giving it away because this is mine. You can go get your own. This is by Greg Gilbert. It's called What is the Gospel? The Greatest Definition of Sin I've Ever Read came out of this book, and, and it's what I just gave to you. Is sin doing and not doing? It absolutely is. The Bible talks about that, but the root of all of that sin is the ultimate sin, which is denying God's right to rule in your life. That's what it means to not believe in Jesus. It's, it's not to believe in him as Lord, as his right to govern you. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you see me no more. What's that about? It's because when Jesus goes to the Father, it means that he's died. He's died for the sins of the world. He's raised himself from the dead. Righteousness is now available because forgiveness is now possible because he's died for the sins of the world. But it's not just the righteousness that comes through grace, but the Bible also talks about another kind of righteousness and a righteousness that comes through me availing myself to the transformative power of the work of God inside of me. I don't have permission to say I can't change. We can change because of the power of God. And judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. What's John talking about there? He's saying, hey, there is no neutrality when it comes to spirituality. Pick a side, and if you don't pick God, you've already chosen the one you're gonna be on. And you've chosen the side that's going to be judged. This word parakletos is the word here in John 16, which in the New Living Translation is rendered for us advocate. It comes from two words, para, which means beside, and kletos, which means to be called. So it means to be called to one side. So it is used at times for comforter. It it is used at times for counselor. It does translate that way, but its primary meaning, its primary use in the day that this text was written, it was again a legal term. It was an advocate that went into the courtroom with you. So there is someone who has brought an accusation, and now you the person. It might be that you have to testify on your own behalf. You don't want to go into those situations alone. You want someone there with you who can advise you, who can advocate for you, who can participate with you. That's the Holy Spirit in my life. In that way, but in many more. And this idea of an advocate, if you've ever used the services of an attorney, sometimes what the attorney says to you, because they have your best interest at heart, this is what they say, oh, oh, you don't want to do that. Oh, no. Don't, don't say that. Right, in all those courtroom dramas, you see sometimes the, uh, right, the, the advocate, the attorney, puts his hand over the microphone, right? Because their client is saying something that they shouldn't say. This is part of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. This is part of the promise here about no condemnation that sometimes we don't like to think about. See, because part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life, is it to remind me that I'm not condemned from the sin of my past? Yes, it is. But part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction to my heart. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to take me beyond a revelation of there is therefore now no condemnation, which we're going to get to in just a minute, but to say, hey, I'm here to bring conviction to your heart, to whisper in your ear, let's not do that. No, you shouldn't say that, right? The Holy Spirit inside of me, working with my conscience, motivating me to do what I should and helping me to say, no, I'm not. The Holy Spirit should be the most dominant influencer of my will. 
The most dominant influencer of my will should come from the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. 1 John 2.1 uses the same word as advocate or parakletos in reference to Jesus. Jesus, even he himself, functions in this capacity in my life. We were at Vanessa's uh, parents' house last night, and, and you know, we we're doing the big gift exchange. There were lots of comforters being exchanged last night. It made me want to just take a nap right there, right? right? There are blankets now that they make out of material. I don't know where they find the material from. It is the softest, right? You just, you want something like that. We've got them in our house, down in our den, and we just, we're cuddlers. We like to get on the couch and turn on the TV as a family, and, and, all, and then we're fighting. I want this one because that one's more, right? This one's softer than the other. This is one of the reasons why I feel like sometimes we get into trouble if the translation of our Bible is comforter because we read that word through the interpretation of our Western experience, we think of him as this nice fleece blanket. But what are those ridiculous things that people wear? They're all one piece. Snuggies, yes. I hope you don't have one of those, right? Snuggies, right? Unless it's camo, then it's okay. Right? right? We think of the Holy Spirit as all he just wants to make me feel good about myself. That's part of who he is. That's part of who he is. But there are also times where you need him to advocate for you. And sometimes advocating for you and advocating to me is saying, did you hear that list that the devil just read about you? Yes, I did. You know that they're all true? Yes, I do. Let's not add to it today. Okay, let's not. I need that voice in my life from my Father, and it comes through his Spirit. See, I'm telling you, this question that Paul asked, who, 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 who's going to condemn you, right? And we get to say, I don't have to feel condemned because I've been forgiven. I've been, I've been forgiven. But just because I'm not going to be condemned, I'm telling you, it's buried in there in this big promise. There should be something inside of me that says, and thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit is inside of me to bring conviction to my heart because I don't want to have to add to the list of the things that I need to be forgiven of. Stop making the list bigger. That's why Paul tar starts out. I'm telling you, this chapter, it's amazing. Romans 8.1, how does it start? There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. And oftentimes we've read it, and sometimes people have taught it inappropriately to say, you don't have to feel bad about your sin. There's no condemnation. I just, can I just tell you, I want to feel bad about my sin. I, I, right, I want there to be something in my heart that feels wrong when I do wrong. I don't want to get stuck in a place of shame. We're not talking about that tonight. But I want my heart to feel the right feeling when I don't do the things that I should and I do the things that I should not. See, there's condemnation and there's conviction and then there's this thing called consequence. And we do not like those last two words. We like that first one, but I'm telling you these last two flow out of the first a condemnation-free eternity does not include a consequence-free existence. A condemnation-free eternity does not include a consequence-free existence. What does that mean? Romans 8, 34. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And what does it say he's doing? It says he's 
pleading for us. Why is he pleading for us? Because in 1 John, we're told that he is a parakletos. He's an advocate. So he's in the heavens. He's pleading for you. He's pleading for me. If we've made a vow of devotion, if we're in the family, and I think part of what he's pleading for us is, God, let's make this season of blessing last longer for them. I think sometimes he's pleading, God, this season of, of hardship, let's shorten it for them, right? Sometimes he's pleading for us for favor. Sometimes he's pleading for us for blessing. And sometimes he's pleading for us to get a spanking because that's what we need. Sometimes he's saying to the Father, God, if we don't intervene and let them feel the consequence of the depravity of their action, they're going to keep hurting themselves and hurting those around them. Now, for some of you, that messes with your doctrine of grace and what I would say to you that is the essence of the doctrine of grace. He loves us enough not to leave us the way we are. Who, who here looks at the parent who was 100% permissive of their child, never disciplines, never gives consequence. We've sat with them in restaurants. We've been behind them in line in the grocery store. You with me? There's a part of me that wants to carry a copy of Growing Kids God's Way, the parenting class, right, and just hand that out indiscriminately to people, right, which would not be good. That's when the Holy Spirit says, hey, let's not do that today, right? Nobody says, those parents, they're, aren't they just graceful? Right? Who says that? We go, good God, what's wrong with you? Right? But when it comes to God, who's my father, when we think of him disciplining, for some reason, all of a sudden, it causes us to get nervous about grace. Right? Let's get over ourselves. Hebrews 12 Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, listen to this. People like to pretend these verses aren't in the Bible. Here they are. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, hey, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord's discipline, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by his father? I've heard of a few. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all his own children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Right? Do you understand here? If you never feel like God's teaching you a lesson, maybe you should be a little nervous. Since we respected our earthly fathers, who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. I am so glad my father disciplined me when he was on this earth. Come on. But God's discipline is always good for us, right? Right? We love to talk about the goodness of God in Romans 8. We seldom run to Hebrews 12. So that we might share in his holiness. You see, part of our holiness comes through the grace that's given to us that I can never live up to, but part of the holiness comes through me being to let my soul sweat a little bit as I labor in this journey of transformation. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this 
way. Verse 12, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Come on, that's a good word, isn't it? There is therefore now no condemnation. I think wrapped up in that little question is an awfully big promise. That there is grace and forgiveness for you and for me. And there, there is conviction that he promises to offer that we don't have to wander through this life on our own. And when we find ourselves stubborn in our humanity, doing the things that we know we shouldn't and not doing the things that we know we should, we have an advocate called the Holy Spirit and an advocate that's called our Savior working together with the Father divinely to bring the right punishment and the right consequence at the right time so that we can learn our lesson and move forward in our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Wow, we're doing good. 6.30. If you're struggling with resentment toward God or someone else, and this isn't going to be an easy one to stand on, but I'm telling you there are people here tonight that you need to stand. For some of you here tonight that you, you, you've been having a conversation with God because you're not happy with him that he's forcing you to walk through some consequences and you thought that he was a God of grace and what he's trying to say to you tonight, this is my grace. This is my grace. For you to suffer a little while now so that you can come into a season of health and wholeness that you've never known before. For some of you tonight, you, there is resentment in your heart because there's somebody who loves you enough to ask you the hard questions and you don't like them right now, but you need to love them because God has put them in your life so that you won't stay stuck in the place that you're at. We need people in our lives who love us enough. I believe people are going to be listening to this podcast. They're going to be standing up wherever they are. They're going to be making some phone calls, calling people to apologize, calling people to ask for their forgiveness, for just being so honorary and saying, thank you for loving me enough to ask me the hard questions. Some of you, you're going to make some calls on the way home. I've just, I, I just want you to know I have resented you. Forgive me because I know that I needed to hear those things that you said to me. So I just want to pray for you in this moment. We're not going to linger in this moment. We're going to go into this song. I'm just telling you, if you're here tonight and this resonates with your heart, I'm going to invite you to stand. I just want to pray for you. I know it takes courage. Father, I pray for every person that's standing up right now. Hey, let's for this one, if someone's standing up near you, gather around them and put your hand on their shoulder. Father, we thank you for the courage that people are demonstrating tonight to stand in this moment. We thank you, God, that you are a God who does not leave us to our own devices. That if we've made a vow of devotion to you, that we're in the family and that we have advocates. And sometimes those advocates are the very people that are standing around us even now. So, Father, I don't just pray for that person that's standing. I pray for all of us. Let it be that all of our hearts would be open to the correction that you would bring. Let it be that all of us would be open to the conviction that we need to feel before we commit the sin that we know we need to stop doing. And may it be, oh God, that every person that's standing and every person that needed to, that just wasn't sure how, God, that we would be awash in the great promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I pray for the people that stood who know that they need to make a call. I, I pray for the people that stood that know they need to reach out and ask for forgiveness. I pray, God, that, that as confident as they are right now to do it, Father, I pray that the enemy would not come in and steal that seed of courage as they walk out that door, that they would follow through, that you would seal this work in them. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Let's worship together one more song. Yes, sir.